with that, Mark chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 29. I know your sermon notes say we're going to stop in 39. I'm actually going to finish the chapter out. Um, so yes, we're going to be here three hours today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's going to be good. No, I'm really excited about what God's going to be sharing with us today. So Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29, uh, follow along as I read it. It says this, And immediately he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought all to, or to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Father, as we open your scriptures this morning, we read about your, the works of your son, Jesus, here on earth. Lord, I pray that you would show us your ways as we study your word. Lord, teach us your path and lead us in your truth and teach us. Lord, you are the God of our salvation. And I do thank you uh, that we get the privilege of openly sharing your good news here uh, where we're at this morning. Lord, it is such a blessing that we have the freedom to announce it. So Lord, I pray that you would bless this reading and teaching, and we pray these things in Jesus' good and precious name. And the church said, amen. So have you guys ever had a long day? I don't just mean, I don't just mean a long day. I mean like a really long day. Uh, maybe like you started out really early, you had to go into work at 6 o'clock or a little bit earlier, and then it was a long day. You had to stay until 6 o'clock. It was a full 12-hour day. And then you get home, and the water heater's broken, so you had to fix the water heater. And then you finally get that all worked out, and then somebody calls you, a good friend or family member, and they are in crisis mode, and you need to talk to them. And you have to talk until the late hours of the night. And you're just thinking, all I really want is my bed right now. <laughs> Has anyone been there? Okay, I can, I can remember many days, especially in college, I actually had a schedule mapped out from about 6 a.m. until midnight every single day for classes, for work, and then for ministry stuff. I was teaching Bible studies on the campus, and there would be many times something unexpected would come up, and I would be forced to, not forced, I'd willingly do it, but I would always say, yes, okay, Lord, if this is where you got me going, I'm, I'm going to do this. And you would do something, and then you'd get back into bed late, late at night, and only to know that you're going to be waking up early the next morning. And many times I, I, I would be there and I would have to pray. I would have to pray, Lord, I, I need your spirit's strength in order to do this. I need your spirit's strength in order to carry on for this next day. Would you give me that strength? And we're going to see this, this particular story in Mark chapter 29, or 20, uh, Mark chapter 1, excuse me, verse 29. 
This particular story um, we read part of last week, Jesus is, this is a day in the life of Jesus, a very long day in the life of Jesus. It starts off in the Sabbath morning, this would be a Saturday morning, and it ends late, late at night, that Saturday night as the Sabbath ends when the sun goes down. And Jesus is incredibly busy. So Jesus in the morning had been teaching in their synagogues, and teaching is an exhausting, <laughs> exhausting task, I will say. But he wasn't just teaching, he was also casting out demons, and he was showing the authority of God as he taught. And people were absolutely going crazy for his teaching. They loved it. He was the most riveting teacher you could possibly sit and listen to. They could not stop leaning forward in their seats with their eyes fixed on Jesus the whole entire time as he taught. And immediately after that, Jesus, he leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon and Andrew. Now, Simon and Andrew were brothers that were called to follow Jesus and he enters their house. This house of Simon and Andrew became kind of his ministry headquarters in the town, this town of Capernaum. And this is where we see a lot of ministry happening um, throughout the ministry of Jesus, the three-year period where Jesus is out ministering, and he's really busy. So he always comes back to this house. This is kind of his core headquarters, his home base. This is where he comes. And as soon as they get there, and he's with James and John, so at least four disciples we know are with him, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and they told him about her. So Jesus gets home after a long morning of preaching the good news, and immediately he's confronted with sickness. And we see something so great about Jesus here, something that I absolutely love about Jesus. He doesn't just have a heart for the crowds of people that are flocking together to watch him, that are riveted about his teaching, but he actually cares about the personal, private life of us. He cares about our private pain, our sickness that's behind closed doors. He ministers to us personally as well as us corporately. And that's something so important to remember about the life and ministry of Jesus. So when he hears about Simon and Andrew's, um, or Simon's mother-in-law being sick with the fever, he immediately goes to her, takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So now we might be reading this and thinking, okay, Jesus, you just did this, and it was kind of a, self, a self-serving thing. You just healed this woman so she could serve you dinner. <laughs> You're hungry. And no, I, I would discourage you from thinking that, But the first point I would like to make this morning is that our response to the salvific, and that is the saving work of Christ in our lives, should be to serve him with our life. Our response of the salvific, that is the saving work of Christ in our life, should be to serve him with our life. That should be the natural response when we're saved by Christ, when we're healed by Christ, when we have the healing touch of Christ in our life. That should be the natural response. And that's what we see, Simon Simon's mother-in-law, her natural reaction upon being lifted up by Christ, by with the healing touch of Christ, as soon as she was healed, she began to serve them. That was the natural response that she could just possibly have. When you are healed, when you receive salvation, you are stoked. I know a lot of people, especially young Christians, I did a lot of campus ministry, and as soon as people understood that their sins were forgiven, that they were healed spiritually, that they were going to live eternally, eternally with Christ, they could not stop talking about that. It's that, that zeal and that, that passion that they have when they just come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I think that is what we see here in Simon's mother-in-law, that her natural outpouring was to serve him with her life. And I pray that that would be our natural response too. That the Lord would restore the joy of our salvation and and those of us who have been saved for a while. Our natural response should be to serve Christ with our life. In Psalm 100 verse 2 it says, To serve the Lord with gladness 
And then this is a verse that I also uh, really, I do love, and I, I would lo- like you guys to turn there and even highlight this one. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. When you go there, it says this, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Oh, man. I highlighted that one, actually. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Now, I've had, to, I've had to actually use that verse in my life quite a bit because as, as a Christian and even as a pastor, there's been so many times where I would get up and teach and I'd finish up the sermon and I'd just think, man, I failed. I did a terrible job or I did a terrible job leading this small group or this small group Bible study or whatever it was. Throughout my life, I've had many, many times like that where I thought I could have done better. And then I'd always have to fall back on this verse Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. God uses everything we commit to do for the Lord, whether we think we're failures or not. Now, that's good news, right? I was encouraged by that, and I hope that you guys are this morning. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Simon's mother-in-law serving the Lord was not a useless task. God used that, and that was her natural outpouring. Nothing we do for the Lord is ever useless. If you don't see the good in what you're doing for the Lord, I guarantee behind the scenes, God is working in people's lives to do something amazing, to do something great. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. In fact, I was just out yesterday morning. Um, we were out with Cross Connection Church. We were doing a big outreach in um, Escondido as part of Saturate San Diego it's a big movement of many churches that are gathered together to hand out basically just a Jesus CD and a gospel track to every home in San Diego. And it's just like 3.2 million people, 1.2 million homes. And it's a really big task. So we're out in Escondido and I'm putting these things on doors. And we don't see people come to the Lord in that, outreach, in that kind of an outreach. But I know because I'm praying for it and I know that because we're doing this work for the Lord that it's not going to be useless that people are going to get those and they're going to they're see and they're going to hear about Christ. 3.2 million people in San Diego are going to hear about Christ. That's good news. And even at sundown in verse 32, we continue. They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now, this is an important point to make. At sundown was the end of what we call or we know as the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a day of rest for the Jewish people. That means that they could not travel. They could not work. Um, they, I mean, they were, they were very legalistic at this time with the Sabbath day. Like, if you did anything out of line, if you even, like, picked some grain up or something, or you picked a weed, like, that would be considered work. So at nighttime, as soon as the sun goes down, the Sabbath ends, all of these people that had now heard Jesus, the whole town had heard Jesus teach that morning in the synagogue, they knew where he was staying at Simon and Andrew's house. They brought to him, not, these, not that the sick people were coming to him, they were being brought to Jesus in droves by the people of Capernaum. Now that's amazing. That brings me to another point that I want to make this morning. As believers, we need to bring lost, sick, and dying people to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the Great Commission. We're supposed to teach the good news, but we're supposed to be bringing these lost, sick, and dying people to Jesus. That was the natural response of Jesus' teaching at that time in the synagogue was to bring all those who were lost, all those who were dead in their sins, all those who were sick, all those who needed the healing touch of Jesus in their life. Why do we bring them to Jesus? Well, because we know Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, 
Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many people do you know in your life that need rest today? Quite a few, I'm sure. You know, it's interesting to me that I, I think that as Christians, it's, it's easy for us, I'd say on a, on a large scale, to lose what I call the joy of our salvation. The joy of our salvation, and, and that's like the outpouring of our joy would be evangelism, would be telling other people about this salvation. And we're going to see that with the leper, we're going to see that with the sick and dying people, that people, they cannot stay silent about what they're doing, about what Jesus has done in their life. You know, it's interesting that one of the most evangelical, I would say, uh, evangelical atheists, Christopher Hitchinson, or Hitchens, sorry, he, he talked in, a, in an interview once, and he said, you know, the biggest problem I have with Christians is that if you really believed people were going to hell and that you were saved, you would have to tell somebody, but I don't see that happening. That's convicting to me. I'm a Christian. And he's saying, look, if you really believe people are going to hell, there's lost people around you, why aren't you doing something about it? Wow. That's coming from an atheist. Somebody who does not believe in God. Somebody who argues against belief in God. But it's true. If we're believers, we're called to share the good news. We need to pray to God, Lord, would you restore the joy of our salvation in our life so that way it's an outpouring of your spirit in my life that I share your good news with my neighbors, with my friends, with my family. There is a certain circle of people around your life that you alone are more equipped to reach than I am as your pastor because God's put them in your life. So what are, what are we doing about that? Are we bringing these sick and dying people to Jesus? So Jesus, we, we see here, he had many sick people brought to him and he healed many of them. It doesn't just say that there was a few people gathered at this door of the, of the house in Capernaum. It says the whole entire town was lined up that night at the door. Now here's what's crazy to me. is like Jesus just had this long day. He did not complain once about ministering to these people late into the night. Late into the night. I mean, they had to have been exhausted. I'm sure some of the disciples, I'm sure Simon and Andrew probably went to bed already. Jesus is still out there healing people, talking to people, ministering to them. And he doesn't ever get tired of it. He's up late into the night doing this. He must have been exhausted. Then what happens the next morning? I mean, I wouldn't have to make up an excuse after all this has happened for Jesus to sleep in, right? We wouldn't have to make up an excuse. Like, you deserve it, Jesus. You should sleep in. No. Verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were looking for him, they searched for him. And when they finally found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, okay, I'm going to go back and teach there. No. Okay, my fame is great. I'm going to go heal some more people in Capernaum. No. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there as well. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. One thing I can learn from Jesus' ministry and him waking up very early in this morning is another point I'd like to make is that our response to the saving work of Christ through our lives should be supplication and worship. That's prayer and worship. That should be our natural response to seeing God work through your life. When you see God work through your life in powerful ways or even in small ways, our response ought to be to get on our knees in a private place and pray and worship God. 
You know that uh, the busyness in your life should not drive you away from prayer and away from reading the scriptures and away from worshiping God, as it does most of the time, right? If we're being truthful, like completely honest with ourselves, our busy schedules tend to drive us away from spending time in prayer. Jesus here is giving us an example. He's saying, no, your busy schedule should drive you to spending private time in prayer with me. So do you have a private time of prayer with God? Do you have that marked out in your schedule? Are you willing to wake up before the sun even rises to go out into your room, to close the door, to go out on a walk, to go out somewhere that's private? It could be in your car. It could be doing whatever. I I love to pray privately with the Lord while I'm driving. You can do it however you want, but a private place in prayer where it's just you and God and God can minister to you. He can speak to you and you can pour your heart out to him. You can say, Lord, it's been a long day. I need some energy. I pray that your spirit would empower me to, to, to be a witness for you tomorrow. Why? Because when we're tired and groggy, it's like we're not a very good witness when we're like that, are we? Let's just be honest. When we're busy, how, how does that look to everybody else? How does that look? You know, it's interesting that Ian Bounds, he wrote this book called The Weapon of Prayer, and um, it's a book I've read before, but there's one, that, one little saying in there that I highlighted, and he says in this, in this book, he says, God needs prayer and people need prayer too. It is indispensable to God's work in this world, and it is essential to getting God to work in earth's affairs. So God binds people to pray by the most solemn obligation. God commands people to pray. Therefore, Not to pray is plain disobedience to an imperative command of Almighty God. Oh, that caught my attention. Therefore, not to pray is plain disobedience to an imperative command of Almighty God. You see that throughout the scriptures. We're commanded to pray. Romans 12, we see it in Colossians 4, we see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we're commanded to pray all of the time. How are we doing in our prayer lives? You see, this is, this is a, a discipline, I think, that the, especially the American Christian church is lacking in. That if we want to see a great outpouring of the Spirit of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we need to be on our knees in prayer. I believe in the power of prayer, that every time we pray, that God hears our prayers, he's faithful to listen to them, he's faithful to answer them, even if we don't see that answer in our lifetime. Do you believe that? There are so many people in the Bible, in the Scriptures, that heard the Word of God, that prayed for, some, for a movement of God to happen. And it didn't happen in their lifetime, but it did happen. They didn't see it in their lifetime, but it did happen. So my point here is, I don't want you to treat prayer like your spare tire. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we're driving our cars, most of you guys have what we call a spare tire underneath the back, right? And when do you ever pull that spare tire out? Times of emergency, when you have a flat, and you have to pull off to the side of the road, and then you look under the car, and you try to find the spare tire that's underneath there. And once you finally find it, it's like, okay, maybe I haven't looked at this in years. Hopefully there's still air in it, because we usually don't check these things. Prayer isn't something that we just pull out and search for in a time of emergency. Prayer is something that we do with God all of the time, that we need to develop this as a habit in our lives, that we need to get out and pray privately. Now, Jesus talks about prayer. And what's cool is the disciples asked him because they saw Jesus' example of prayer throughout the scriptures and throughout um, his ministry here. So throughout Mark, throughout Luke, throughout John, throughout Matthew, all these people that wrote gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, we can see many, many examples of Jesus going away to desolate places alone to pray. And the disciples caught on, so they asked him in Matthew chapter 6. And they said, 
Lord, how, how do you pray? Teach us how to pray. And this is a great, a great question to ask the Lord. Teach us how to pray. So he says, and when you pray, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand up and pray in synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Jesus says, Our Father who in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, Jesus reveals to us so many times that we ought to get away by ourselves to pray. He even commands it. When you pray, go into, your, go into a private room. Go find a place to be with God. I pray that you guys this week, if you don't have that place, that you would consider that this morning. Consider where could I go in my busy life, in my busy schedule, where can I go to get away with God? To spend some time in prayer. Now this, might, this likely won't come easy the first time. Keep praying. Keep praying. And you know what? As we pray, the Lord continues to bring stuff up in our minds. Okay, I'm going to start praying for my brother and my sister. I'm going to start praying for my friends and family that don't know Christ. I'm going to start praying for my church, for my pastor. I'm going to start praying for my job, my workplace. Jesus tells us to find a private place to pray and spend time with God. It's essential. Because the, the purpose of secret prayer in our lives is to keep us focused on God and not people. Every time we take our focus in our eyes, and we put them on people and people's problems, and we see like, oh man, like he's not coming to church, he, he's still in sin, he's on drug. Like we see this all the time in, in our church, and I see this all the time throughout churches. It's like we sometimes get so focused on people that we forget to see that God's still in control. Private prayer with God is to make sure that we keep our focus on God, not people. Prayer is perfect communion and oneness with the Father. We don't know what Jesus prayed, but I know that he went away to pray to have perfect communion with his dad in heaven with the Father in heaven. Why? Because what did he do? Jesus says every time when he's saying, I am here to do the Father's will. That's powerful. He's got to go spend time with him. When you talk to God in secret, I, I guarantee the Lord will do a mighty work in your lives. When we devote time to prayer, I guarantee you're going to see God work in your heart and your life in ways that you never expected. I challenge you guys to pray. James, who is actually one of the, the guys that are here, James and John were with Jesus in this instance in Mark chapter 1. James in his book says in chapter 5, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And this is a verse that I always love too. It's James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. I believe that. Because I know many of you guys that are following the Lord, you're considered righteous in the sight of God. When you pray, that is powerful and effective. The scriptures say so. Don't forget that. That your prayers are powerful and effective. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. Like we say, okay, where am I going next? Dad, where am I going next? And he'd say, okay, hey, I want you to go throughout Galilee. You're not going back to Capernaum. So when the disciples came to Jesus, 
They said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. They need you. There's more sick people back in Capernaum. They want you to go back there. They're all waiting at the door of Simon and Andrew. Like, they're like, Simon's mother-in-law is going crazy. She can't make enough food for all these people. Like, we need you to come back. And Jesus says, no, I'm going. Father, because I've spent time with God, I know the direction and what he's got planned for me. I need to go throughout the region of Galilee and now teach in other synagogues. That's the reason that I came. Wow. And then he's approached with this man with leprosy. In verse 40, we pick up there, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, is what my translation say. Your translation might say compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, saying, See to you that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Another point I'd like to make this morning is our response to lost and dying people should be compassion. Our response to hurting and lost and broken people should be compassion. There's people all around us that are lost. They're, they don't have the good news in their life. If they don't have God, then that means they don't have the necessarily the moral compass. They're going to do whatever they feel like doing that day, most of the time. Jesus is moved with compassion for those people. He's moved with compassion for the sick. Our response to lost and dying people should be compassion. So I guess we should check, you know, how, how full is our compassion tank today? Because <laughs> I find that many Christians, myself included, many times when I, when I really think about this, when I really pray about this, I find my compassion tank's pretty much empty. And I need to go back to the Lord and I say, Lord, I need you to give me compassion for people. I need you to give me compassion for these lost and dying people, Lord. Can you do that? And he does. This man with leprosy was, we know that from the text, it was in his advanced in a very advanced stage. So leprosy was one of those diseases where you get boils all over your skin. And back then it was basically, basically a death sentence. And not only was it a death sentence, you were, I mean, you were considered the walking dead. You had to walk through town. People had to stay a certain distance from you. Usually it's 15 feet or more. And if they got too close, you had to yell, unclean. Sometimes you're walking down the marketplace. You're going to get some water or whatever you're getting. And somebody gets a little too close. You have to yell, unclean, I'm unclean. Why? Because they knew that if somebody else got leprosy, you couldn't even touch those lepers because if you touch them, you might get leprosy and then you would be considered unclean. This was an awful disease that you could have. I mean, probably the most awful disease that you could possibly have. In fact, a lot of scholars think that in this time, it was commonly believed by the priests and the teacher, religious teachers at that time that the only person that could heal leprosy was God. So like they had this whole ritual that you could go to the temple and you could show yourself to the priest. The priest was the one that would declare you leprous, meaning that you were unclean. They would cast you out of the temple. You could no longer worship in the temple. You could no longer even go near the temple to worship. So now you're a religious outcast. You can't spend time with God in the temple where you're supposed to be meeting with God and praying. You can't spend time with other people besides other lepers because you're unclean and you can't spend time around people. You're just the outcast of society. And you have to go back to a priest who would have to examine you and say, okay, yeah, you're clean. And they would restore you. They had a ritual that you could do and a sacrifice that you would make showing that this person was clean. But here's the thing. At this time, 
none of the priests back then even knew that ritual because they, they would have to look it up in the old ancient scrolls because they had never practiced it. So when Jesus sends this man away after healing him, what he's trying to say to the religious leaders at the time is by sending this leprous man that is now completely healed is saying that an act of God has happened. God has healed this man. And that would be big news because they never saw that. They would have to look through all of their old writings and everything and find where it said, okay, this is what you do and the sacrifice you make for a leprous man who is now clean and they can declare him now ceremonially clean. Jesus is moved with compassion for this man. But here's what's so cool. This man actually, in the passage beforehand, we saw the whole town of Capernaum bringing their sick and dying people to Jesus, right? Here we see a sick and dying man seeking Jesus out for himself. That when we seek Jesus for ourselves, only the loving touch of Jesus can heal our rotting and falling apart lives. You see, when, when Jesus saw this man, this man, not only that we see in the, in the Gospel of Luke, this man actually didn't just get on his knees, he got on his face before Jesus. He sought Jesus out and then he gets down on his face and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's saying, you're God. This leprous man understood who Jesus was. This is the first time that's actually recorded in the Gospel of Mark for, of Jesus healing a man with leprosy. He'd heal other various diseases and even cast out demons, but he had yet to heal a man with leprosy because this was considered the Disease of all diseases. It was considered like if you had leprosy, you must have had some kind of crazy sin in your life that you deserved it. Could you imagine like the social stigma of walking around as a leprous person and everyone's thinking that you did something in your life to deserve that and they don't even know you? But Jesus, I mean, for years, this man's in an advanced stage of leprosy. There's boils all over his body. He's probably close to death. He seeks Jesus out, gets on his face before Jesus, says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's not saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. There's a difference. When he's saying, you can make me clean, he's saying, you're the one that can heal my heart. Saying, yes, these boils suck. I'm dying, but I'm dying on the inside, Jesus. I need your healing. I need your touch. I need you to cleanse my life. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The only one who can make us clean in this life is, is Christ. When we seek him out, we get on our hands and knees and we say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leprous man gets down on his hands and knees and Jesus moved with compassion. What does he do? He could have just said, I'm willing, be clean. And the man could have just walked off and he would have been clean, right? Like the 10 other lepers he healed in, in another story in the Gospel of Luke, he just said, go show yourselves to the priest. He didn't touch them. He didn't do anything. He just said, go show yourselves to the priest. And on their way to the priest, they were healed. It's like on their walk to, they had faith that they said, okay, Jesus just told us we're going to show ourselves to the priest. They, they just started walking towards the synagogue to go show themselves to the priest. And immediately they looked down and they're healed. Well, that's amazing. Only one of those lepers ever came back and thanked Jesus. And this case is unique because when Jesus stoops down, moved with compassion, he actually touches this leprous man, which was not okay to do at the time. This was the first person to touch this leprous man in years. Can you imagine like what that must have felt like? The value that this man must have felt when Jesus stoops down and touches this man. Nobody had touched this man in years because he was unclean. He was unfit for society. He was going to die. The loving touch of Jesus can heal and cleanse our rotting and falling apart lives. 
I believe that. And when I see other people and people around us here in Valley Center and Escondido and San Diego that have falling apart lives, their lives is, they're, they're just rotting. They have awful lives. They're in crisis mode. Only Jesus' touch can heal that. Only Jesus can make us whole on the inside. When we come to him and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Because a sin in our lives is essentially what I would consider a leprous disease that separates us from God. We need his saving work in our lives, amen? So in conclusion here, we've learned that our response to the salvation or the salvific work of Christ in our lives is to desire to serve him with our whole life. We should have the desire to serve God with our whole life. Why? Because we've received salvation, for those of you who have. If you haven't, I would encourage you to weigh the evidence here. See what Jesus has done and what could he do for you. So I guarantee once you have received salvation in your life, you'll want to serve him with your whole life. That should be our natural response and reaction. The second one is our response to Christ's saving work through our lives. That means the work that we're doing for Christ. When we see him working through and in our lives, should be that we spend time with him in prayer and worship. We need to get down on our knees. We need to go and find a private place to pray. Now, I say a private place to pray, but also Jesus exampled public prayer too. I think you as parents, that we as, uh, as a church, we need to example, example public prayer. If we're not praying in front of our kids, if we're not praying in front of our family members, they won't even know that we're, we're Christians, that we're any different really. It's good to example prayer. I remember seeing my dad early in the morning, Many, many, for many, many years as I would go to, to, to college, he'd be at the table and he'd be, have his Bible open and he'd be praying. Now, he wasn't praying to make himself seem like, I'm a, I'm a guy that prayers a lot, like, look at me, I'm so holy. No, he was praying to make an example of himself. So that way we could see that and we could desire that same kind of communion and oneness with God. But we need to be spending that time in prayer with God, especially the private prayer. We should have compassion on the sick and dying people around us. There's a lot of people that are lost and need Jesus to save them. We must have compassion on them. It's what Christ shows us. And when needy people seek Jesus, he will always be found. Now here's a question I want, I want to ask you guys and just lay out before you because I think this is kind of something that I've struggled with. What if your God does not live up to your expectations? What do I mean by that? What if you were one of those family members, those families? What if you're one of those dads or one of those moms that brought your sick and dying loved one, your little kid, to Capernaum that morning just to find that Jesus had left? Think about that. It says Jesus healed many that were sick. Many who were sick and many who had demons. It does not say all. When you look at that text, it, it really challenged me because I, I, would, I would expect that Jesus healed all that were sick. But he didn't. What if you're that friend that, you know, you brought your, your blind buddy all the way through town. You walked him down the streets and down the stairs carefully to get to that house of Simon and Andrew just to hear the news that Jesus left. What if your God hasn't met your expectations? Well, you'd be in good company, I think. There's a man we read about earlier in the book of Mark named John the Baptizer. This man, Jesus, or God actually raised him up from his youth and he set him aside from everybody else out in the wilderness to prepare him. His whole entire life was in preparation to announce the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. 
This whole entire life was set aside for this. And when he finally is baptizing people in the Jordan River and he's telling people to repent, believe in the good news, and then he sees Jesus and he says, and here he is, the Savior of the world is among us. And then he baptizes Jesus. He sees the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. John's thinking, this is it. The kingdom of God is here. All of my life's work, all of my life's preparation, all the time I spent alone with God in prayer, all the stuff that God's been teaching me and showing me and leading me into, this is the, the culmination of all of that. And yet, what happens to John the Baptist right after, almost right after he baptizes Jesus and sends Jesus on his earthly ministry and Jesus starts healing people and doing all stuff? Jesus, John the Baptist is arrested not long after. You know, I understand that John the Baptist was in a dungeon cell for the majority of the ministry of Jesus. You would think that if there was any powerful man that would be next to Jesus for his earthly ministry, it would have been John the Baptist who the Lord had trained his whole life, right? The most important prophet in the whole of the Bible, essentially, the one that was set aside to announce the coming of the Savior. Yet for those three years, he was in a dungeon cell. You know, and, and I think we know by the scriptures that he actually questioned. He started to question, Lord, is Jesus the one? Lord, I was so sure that Jesus was the one, but why am I in this prison cell? Why can't I see Jesus? I'm hearing all these stories of Jesus baptizing people, of Jesus healing people, he's healing, he's doing all this stuff, but why can't I be there with him? Why can't I see this? I have a feeling that John, in his heart, probably thought, man, this this wasn't my expectation of how this was going to turn out. Because his whole life was in preparation for this, and now he's in a prison cell. And he asks, and he calls two of his disciples while he's in jail, and he says to them, and this is in Luke chapter 7, verse 19, he calls two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus with the question, are you the one who is to come, or are we to look for another? Can you imagine this heart, the heart of John the Baptist, who, who, who God had raised up so powerfully, and Jesus himself actually says, this is my own, this is my own cousin, it's Jesus' own cousin, that God raised up to announce his coming, and he's in, in prison this whole time. So what does he do? John sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? In verse 20 he says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, Are you the one to, who is to come or should we look for another? And in, the hour, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, this is John the Baptist's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. It says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And then verse 23 really caught my attention. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That was a direct response to John right there. This whole entire time, John is thinking, Lord, like this is not what I expected. John's awaiting death at any moment, essentially. And he's thinking, Jesus, I'm your own cousin. Like, if anything, you would just release me from these, these chains, right? And yet John had to lay, lay there in this, in this prison cell for this whole entire time. And what is Jesus' response to him? And I imagine when his disciples came back to him in that dark, cold cell, and they said, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. John got it. I, I understand. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I would almost guarantee that John went back to that verse. And blessed are they who are not offended by him. You see, it's easy for us to be offended by Jesus because we've been praying for a long time and we haven't seen the healing work of Christ. I've, been, I've prayed for people that were on their deathbed that for healing. We've had pastors there and we expect, okay, this person's going to get healed just to get the call the next day that they passed away. And I would ask God, why? We did everything the Bible said. We anointed them with oil. We had the elders pray for them. We did all of this stuff that you said we should do and that they would be healed. But why? Why did they have to die? And Jesus, and honestly, when I, when I would pray those things, Jesus would respond like this. He'd say, they did receive full healing. They're with me. Not all the time are we going to receive full healing in this life. Jesus' earthly ministry was not to come and heal everyone. He was to announce the kingdom of God had come. He was to announce that eternal life was now available for us. That communion and oneness was with God is now direct through him. The Savior of the world was among us. There's a saving power that is greater than our physical health that is among us. It's the saving power of our soul. We need our souls to be saved. Another man named Paul, he wrote about a third of the New Testament. He had to come to God with about the same thing John the Baptist came with, and he said, Lord, I plead with you, remove this thorn, this weakness from my side. Three times he prayed and pleaded with God for this, and God came back and said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. I I do firmly believe that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of this world. Sometimes he will withhold healing, but he has a reason for it. Sometimes we come to Jesus and we expect him to be there to heal us. We expect to receive his healing touch right then and there, and sometimes that just doesn't happen but blessed is the one who's not offended by him. You know, I was recently down in Oceanside at a carburetor shop, and yeah, I know they still make carburetors, and they still work on them. (laughs) And it's just this little shop, this little strip mall thing in this shop, and the the owner was a Christian, so we started talking, because I'm a pastor and he's a Christian, and he tells me this story that just touched my heart completely, and he said this, he said, for the last five years, there's this young man, probably in his, uh, I'd say early 30s, who is autistic. And for the last five years, God has put it on his heart to travel from shop to shop to shop down there in Oceanside to pray with the store manager and with the employees every week. This guy's autistic. You know, every, a lot of us would think he's disabled. He, he needs to be healed. God says, no, I'm going to use him just the way he is. And not only that, this young man would remember, he had a memory better than any of us who don't have a disability at all. He could remember five years back what he prayed for you for. And he says, yeah, this young man would come and he would pray with my employees who weren't even Christian. He'd say, hey, how did this go? I prayed for you this like a year ago, you know, and that, that something would happen. He's like, man, that worked out, totally worked out. And it would just blow these people's minds that this man had that kind of a memory, that he cared enough to come into their shop and pray for him that day. For five years, he's been doing this. And I don't think he's going to stop. And that really touched me because it just, it just reminded me that sometimes God loves to use the foolish things of this world to confine the wise. He loves to use you just as you are. Do you believe that this morning? Because that, that challenged me. This young man is, is said to have had, he's always got a smile on his face. He's always just happy to be there. He's always happy to be praying with people. That's his ministry. 
and he's made a five-year lasting impact. He, he said, this shop owner said, like, I would get calls from other shops, and he'd say, hey, this guy's here. Can he come pray for your guys right now? And he'd be like, yeah, come on over. Like, this would just be a regular occurrence on a weekly basis. And blessed are you if you're not offended by me. That's what Christ says. I would like us to think about that this week now. Let's pray as we wrap up. Lord, today we saw your mighty hand lift a sick woman out of her sickness. Lord, we saw you work late into the night healing many people of their sicknesses, of casting out demons. Lord, we saw you leave before the sun had even risen that next morning to spend time with your Father in private prayer. Lord, we saw your hand touch an unclean man and make him clean. Lord, I ask this morning that you would search our hearts for anything unclean. Lord, you would search us out. That you would reach your hand into the depths of our souls, lift us up into an abundant life that you have planned for us. Lord, I believe that you're going to use us just as we are. And I pray that you would encourage us by your spirit, Lord. Would you energize us by your spirit? Would you give us a heart for lost and dying people? Would you give us compassion for them as, as Christ had? And we ask these things in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.